Scene four, petals on a wet black brow. Port of Ithaca, southern tip of Lake Cayuga, in the English Lordship of Vinland. Frigg's Day, Compline, night 24th of March, 1283, eve of the Feast of the Annunciation, New Year's Eve. It is a dark and stormy night. Frigid rain slices through the roiling sky. The haggard and sorely pressed soldiers under the command of the Baron of Amherst disembark onto the slippery docks at the port of Ithaca. Spurred by hopes for warm fires and feather beds within Ithaca's walls, they slosh their way up the cold, muddy roads. Along the quay, black rain clouds dump sheets of chilled fury across Amherst's brow like petals of divine wrath. Along the wearisome road, the rain drops slow to a gentle trickle, only to pick up again moments later. The alternation jangles the nerves of the soldiers and horses alike. Both bray like wild beasts as the storm proves itself a more relentless, ruthless, and intractable foe than the Frankish ever were. Clanging raindrops on the soldiers' metal helmets add a noisy torture to the bitter cold. For the knights and mounted sergeants and mail, the precipitation stiffens the rusting chain links until their arms grow too rigid to even wipe the snot from their faces and soaks the rusty chill deep into their bones. The Baron of Amherst... Past his sneezing fit but still suffering from a runny nose and starting to go feverish, yells out with authority, Why have we stopped? Ithaca is right there! Sir Sean is quick to answer. The vanguard is standing before the gates of Ithaca now, my lord, but a messenger just arrived saying that the town has barred its gates to our soldiers. What on Middle Earth are you talking about, Sir Sean? Why are they refusing us entry? This is an army of Englishmen! Are Ithacans not loyal subjects of the English crown? The baron fumes. Perhaps if you reason with the captain of the gatehouse, you might rekindle his patriotic fervor. Amherst shouts hoarsely, Patriotic fervor? I'll strike fear of God into the knave's heart. He spurs his horse to a brisk trot and rides to the front of his halted column of soldiers. Despite the raindrops splashing in his eyes, he catches a glimpse of Ithaca's town guards and identifies which one is the gate tower's captain merely by the way he carries himself. The Baron of Amherst has a knack for sifting out men and women with power. As he yells, he realizes his voice is getting hoarse. What is the meaning of this? I am Lord Geoffrey, Baron of Amherst and Commander General of His Highness King Eddard's expeditionary forces to Montreal. The king's soldiers have a right to be quartered in any English town. In the name of the king, I order you to open these gates. Although far away and watery-eyed, the baron imagines he can detect a sardonic curl in the captain's lip. Begging your pardon, my lord, but them joints on the gate took a hit from, you know, a catapulted boulder during the last siege by those cheese-eaten franks. Now the dang portcullis is all wrecked and our engineers can't fix it till next week. With cold rain seeping down his back, Amherst loses patience. What sort of tomfoolery are you playing at, man? You shall open these gates to my troops at once or suffer the king's wrath. Oh, tut tut, Lord Jiffy, it ain't gentlemanly to go making threats like that. They're liable to stick to the roof of your mouth. The captain of the gate tower guard struts around with a show of bravado. The Baron of Amherst clenches his fists. Do you realize that there are over 5,000 soldiers at my command? They are soaked to the bone and in no mood to sit here all night. One word from my mouth and they'll unleash a torrent of... <sighs> blood. 
You lot of bedwetters can unleash a torrent of wee-wee for all I care. The captain of the gate tower guard wags his steel-mailed fanny and saunters away from the wall. In his place, a scholarly-looking elder wearing carnelian red and dark gray academic robes and holding a large metallic staff with a comfortable red velvet grip in the middle approaches the wall. The scholar calls down to him. Lord Amherst, you would do better allowing your herald to speak for you. You are losing your voice, and you are about to lose your army as well. You dare threaten to attack Ithaca? Ithaca is home to the Silvermorn College of Sorcerers, and I am its grand sage, Ezra Cornwell. We have over 300 brilliant young apprentice sorcerers eager to demonstrate the military applications of their proficiency with source stones. They could sweep away your iron-clad army with their staves quicker than they could sweep up my study with 300 bewitched brooms. Cornwell deftly twirls his staff to demonstrate his skill and awaits a reply. Amherst confers with Sir Sean Madigan and then lets his herald do the speaking for him. The Baron of Amherst has no wish to start any conflicts with loyal subjects of the English crown, only to remind you that since we are a royal army with a commission directly from King Edward himself, we have the right to quarter our troops in English towns. We are here to exercise our royal prerogative. Royal prerogative, eh? We'll see about that. Master Cornwell beckons a large, male-armored man wearing a tabard with the English crown's heraldic coat of arms, three gold lions, passant gardent, on a gules field, along with King Edward's personal badge consisting of the Queen Mother's provincial golden rose with a green stalk and his late father's plantagenet sprig of broom. The man shouts authoritatively, his Royal Highness Eddard, King of England, Prince of Welchland, Lord of Erinland, Duke of Bascony, Duke of Aquitania, and Count of Picardy, commands you to hold your peace. The Mayor of Ithaca reminds you about the atrocities committed by unruly English soldiers against those loyal to the English crown at Fort Bedford. In light of those excesses, he insists that you send your troops in unarmed and one at a time. Sir Sean Madigan fumes. We have 6,000 soldiers who need food and housing immediately. Of that number, nearly 400 are sick or wounded. We can't queue up for days, waiting to get inside one at a time. The King's Commission accords us the right to quarter troops in English towns. The man replies, The King's Charter to Ithaca grants the Mayor the right to decide how and where English troops will be quartered. On the King's authority, I order you to back your troops away from these walls. The Baron trots his shivering horse forward a few more paces and wipes the cold rain from his face. On the king's authority? Who in the wild blue blazes do you think you are? I am Sir Walter Raleigh, the royal coroner for Ithaca, the man replies with a bold air despite the wet rains lashing against his face and armor. Royal coroner? Never heard of such an office. The wise King Edward has heard too many cases where both sides make claims in the name of the English crown, so he has appointed coroners who alone have authority to speak for the crown. Balderdash! The Baron barks out, quickly losing any semblance of patience. We'll show them who has the English crown's authority. Sir Sean, tell the offensive coordinators to ready the battering rams. Grand Sage Ezra Cornwell calls forth hundreds of apprentice sorcerers to take up defensive positions along the wall. Cornwell holds out his large rod of lodestone. In the hands of this master sorcerer, it becomes one of the most powerful weapons in medieval warfare. 
The Grand Sage pulls down his hood to protect against rain. Contrary to popular misconceptions, real historical sorcerers only wore hoods outdoors during inclement weather to keep the rain out of their eyes and never wore them inside just to appear creepy and mysterious. With his face hooded from the rain, he meditates for a moment. Gradually, he begins to regulate his breathing and pulse until the polarization of his lodestone grows stronger and switches from attracting metal to repelling it. Then, with a flick of the Grand Sage's wrist, Amherst and his armored bodyguards go flying backwards off their horses. Amherst's tall frame, on top of such a tall horse, makes for a harder fall than the rest of the knights. Afraid his master might have broken his neck, Amherst's diligent squire rushes to help him to his feet. Alive but with the wind knocked out of him from the fall, Amherst still manages to wheeze out his defiance. Sorcerers, huh? We'll show him what we can do with sorcery. Slingers, clear the walls. Engineers, bring forth for the battering ram. A man for one season. His squire repeats the baron's command to the heralds. Like opera singers, they use voices to amplify and project sound as far as megaphones. Sir Isaac Davies, captain of the Baron's Slinger Company, readies his troops in under a minute and lines them up to strafe the walls. Incidentally, this same Davies would organize the first company of patriotic Minutemen from the town of Acton in the Duchy of Massachusetts Bay and would give his life heroically for the cause of freedom during the Battle of Lexton and Concord a few years later. At his command, the English slingers whirl smooth, round stone pellets over their heads, then launch them at the young sorcerers on the battlements. From a thousand yards, accuracy is impossible, but a constant peppering of weighty stones is usually enough to keep a wall's defensive squads hunkered down long enough to bring up scaling ladders and a battering ram. Usually. Against Cornwell's apprentice sorcerers, it is another matter entirely. Since lodestones, the source stones for elemental earth, are only effective against metal, sling stones or bone-tipped arrows normally keep battle sages at bay. But the apprentice sorcerers at Silvermorn let their imaginations run wild. Wind sorcerers blow into pipes of nacre, the source stone for elemental air, also known as Mother of Pearl, and buzz into pitch-bored conch-shell trumpets to whip up gusts of wind at hurricane velocities, shooting the sling stones and bone-tipped arrows back over Amherst's battle lines with terrifying force. Water sorcerers with glass-encased salt crystals at the tips of their ivory rods drive the blustery rain out in concentrated streams, power-washing the slingers and archers off their feet. Fire sorcerers with their pyrite-studded canes send whirling vortices of fire blazing through the night and steaming the rain to create a thick, blinding fog. The Baron of Amherst watches all these developments with grim determination from the sidelines. Sir Sean Madigan comes galloping back to report to him. Amherst shouts, though his failing voice barely scratches out more than a whisper, What are the reports from the unit captains, Sir Sean? Not good, my lord. You might not want to hear it. Generals have to watch what they don't want to see and listen to what they don't want to hear. Right, here it goes then. The truth is that our center is crumbling from the onslaught of the elements brought on by all those sorcerers, and the reserve teams are refusing to get into the field. The wounded are literally piling up on top of each other from the violence of the wind and the rain. Lord Amherst slaps him on the back. Don't lose courage, man. 
Tell the troops there is pork roasting on a spit and a side of beef waiting for them inside Ithaca, and I have a plan to get it. First, we are going to divide our battle sages into three groups and send them forward there, there, and there, he says, pointing to clusters of apprentices using the less common source stones, wind, fire, and water. Lodestones, the source stones for earth sorcery, have traditionally been the main tool for training battle sages, who specialize in making life difficult for warriors who rely on steel for their weapons and armor. The apprentices equipped with lodestones are wielding them like the savvy soldiers they aspire to become. The wind, fire, and water apprentice sorcerers, on the other hand, prance around with rowdy zeal. Their battle stances are sloppy. Amherst observes, See how they lean over the walls? Our marksmen should be able to pick off a few. Sir Sean disagrees. With wet bowstrings and soggy slings, we won't take down enough to turn the tide. Lord Amherst does not lose resolve. Through this dismal rain, the one thing I can see clearly is that those apprentices are having fun. This is a big game for them. We just need a quick kill or two from our sharpshooters to bring home the deadly realities of war. As soon as Cornwell sees a few of his students getting killed in action, he will withdraw them all. Mark my words. Sir Sean sends out the marching orders. Soon Amherst's crossbowmen and slingers move into position behind the battle mages and battle sages. On their mark, the first volley of crossbow bolts and sling stones flies up against the walls. The Silvermorn apprentices deflect the sorcery, magic, quarrels, and stones aimed at them, displaying true teamwork and skill. Volley after volley, Amherst's troops fail to hit anyone on the town's ramparts. Amherst's own battle mages and battle sages ply their tricks, spells, and cantrips, but the ensorcelled winds and rains from the Silvermorn apprentices lash back at them with overwhelming gale-storm force. A conjured hurricane sweeps Amherst's best and brightest off their feet. The plan is not going well. Battle sages rally! Sir Sean's voice booms. Wearing armor of horn scales or bone plating, the baron's remaining battle sages slosh through the cold mud to gather up any of the storm-battered marksmen willing to stay in the fight. Having realized that they are reckoning with a truly powerful foe, one gnome battle sage tries a forgotten tactic using some old kite shields from the reserve wagon. Although kite shields were a valuable mainstay for the Frankish knights who vanquished the armies of England in 1066, by 1283 they have become outdated tech, lacking the stopping power of the new heater shields. Still, by constructing a small kite shield fort, she could position her crossbow troops to score a few hits. With most of the army swept away and facing overwhelming odds, the brave battle sage straps a kite shield to her back, but then gets caught in a tremendous updraft of wind. It lifts her off her feet high into the air. That battle sage, well known among Vinlanders of all races in later generations as Mary Pippins, happens to be one of my ancestors. Carried from one current of drafts to the next, she eventually drops face first in the mud, right in the middle of eleven downhearted crossbowmen. She smears the mud off her face and says, You see? Flying on a kite can be quite fun! The crossbowmen laugh. Her pluck and good humor lift their spirits. With a simple wave of her hand, she calls out, Let's give them a spoonful of their own medicine and make them go fly a kite of their own. Something sparks to life inside these eleven muddy crossbowmen, and they crawl through the muck and mire on their hands and knees behind her, while cowardly soldiers scramble away from the battlefield. 
Mary Pippins leads them to the supply wagon with the old kite shields. She then pushes on closer to the walls and orders them to set up a shield fort. Once in position, they crank up their crossbows for a volley. After they have cocked their bowstrings and loaded their bolts, the crossbowmen look to Mary Pippins and await her orders. Mary Pippins explains her plan. On three, we are going to pull a supercalifacted expialidox on source stones one, nine, six, and four. One of the crossbowmen, named Bert, interrupts with his terrible Cockney accent. I haven't got an idea what you could just said. A crossbow dwarf crouched next to him named Ernie, who happens to be his loyal friend despite his odd sense of humor and even odder laugh, tells him, Don't worry, no one ever understands what you say either. Just take your shot on three and don't miss. Whitey-ho! Mary Pippins meditates and focuses her lodestone staff at specific Silvermorn apprentices. Her staff starts to vibrate with a humming noise. She counts out, One, two, three! From the kite shield fort, crossbow bolts cut through the rain and the night with terrifying speed and strike several hooded young sorcerers with such force that they are carried off the wall back down into the streets of Ithaca behind them. Sir Sean sees it and whoops in triumph. Woo-hee! They managed to strike down a few apprentices! The Baron of Amherst strains to see. Where? Over there, behind those kite shields, my lord. You'll see a dozen soldiers all dirty in the mud. The Baron of Amherst sniffs. That dirty dozen over there, eh? Let's see what Cornwell thinks about that. No mistake about it. Cornwell is devastated. A wrenching knot twists the Grand Sage's gut at seeing the violence escalate to lethal proportions. He will be delivering eulogies instead of diplomas this year. Not wishing to endanger any more young lives, Cornwell calls them off. Sorcerer's apprentices, withdraw! Seeing this, the Baron of Amherst exults and shouts with what is left of his voice. Call up the siege ladders! It looks like meat is back on the menu, boys! He spurs his horse forward to lead his demoralized troops in a daring charge from the front, while Sir Sean Madigan uses his thunderous voice to echo the war cry. Yeesh! The Baron's optimism is a bit hasty. The death of the apprentices only spurs their mentors to finish the fight with unnecessary roughness. The instructors at Silvermorn College gather at the top of the gate tower to combine their powers. They wave their staves, rods, and canes with all the focus their disciplined minds can dedicate to the task. Pillars of fire and windy tornadoes descend upon the attacking hosts and spray raindrops, shields, helmets, swords, and spears into the clutter before the walls. A speckled tidal wave of rainwater and discarded equipment crashes down upon the infantry companies, surging forward and demolishes their siege ladders. Together with two highly skilled colleagues, Master Cornwell points his lodestone staff directly at the Baron of Amherst. With a twist of their wrists and a grunt from their guts, the three powerful sages hoist the feisty Baron up into the air. The magnetic force of the lodestone staves, acting upon his steel mail armor, zips him up toward the top of the gate tower. The captain of the gatehouse guard reaches out to grab him mid-flight with a gloating smile. Well now, Lord Jiffy, the mayor's putting out a cordial invitation for you to sort out this little difference of opinion you've been having with the corner. We'll see who really represents the king's authority around these parts. Never, shouts the dangling baron. Oh well. The coroner says that if you ain't got a liking for the king's authority, we could always drop you off the walls and let you go hash it out face to face with God's authority. 
The Baron of Amherst retains his composure as he hangs over the tower's edge. I am God's good servant, but the king's first. <laughs>